Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're taking a step away from our series from the Gospel of Matthew to give Pastor Tierra a chance to give her last sermon as a pastor here at South Harbor Church. We're so grateful to Pastor Tierra for her presence and her influence here in our community, and it is with a mix of sadness and joy that we send her on to her new position at a church in Holland, Michigan. And so now, let's head over to Pastor Tierra as she reminds us of the gift of friendship. Good morning. And if I have not yet met you, wow, this is really hard to do with one hand. Uh, if I have not yet met you, my name is Tierra. I am one of the pastors here at South Harbor. And um, I'm excited. Um, we are, um, I'm excited to open the scriptures with you this morning. Uh, if you've been here for a bit, you know that we've been uh, moving through the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is one of, one of four, autobi- not autobiographies, but four biographies of Jesus' life, four accounts of, of this person that we just sang about, uh, this person that we pray to, um, Jesus Christ. And it is written by the least likely disciple, um, a guy named Matthew, who, when Jesus found him, was a tax collector in a tax booth. We'll get into a little bit of that in the sermon today. Um, but um, it took us several weeks, um, several weeks of the series to actually get to Matthew in chapter nine. Uh, he finally introduces himself and we covered Matthew just before um, Easter. So it's been a fun series so far. I hope you tune into the rest of it because it's been really great. Uh, but today, today we are actually going to hit pause on the series uh, because today is my last, um, my last sermon with you for a while. And so I thought it would be fun um, and maybe even fitting to return to a text that is a favorite of mine um, and also a text that's a favorite of yours. Uh, Luke chapter 15 um, is one of my favorite passages of scripture. In fact, my first sermon here at South Harbor, I did a first sermon at Harbor Churches, but it was at Fairhaven wasn't that great of a sermon. So my first sermon here at South Harbor was on Luke 15. It was a sermon series called Not in My Backyard. Uh, and I, I, it was a gift to be able to walk through that, that, that sermon. Um, and it was on a different parable in Luke 15 than I'm, than I'm gonna cover today. But what I discovered as I was moving through preparation for that sermon uh, was that Luke 15 is actually a core text for us as a community here at South Harbor, here at Harbor Churches. Uh, Luke 15 is actually the core of that mission of ours, helping people find their way back to God. Uh, you may have noticed it on the sound booth on your way in, but even if you miss the letters on the sound booth, uh, you, you should know and you'll be able to eventually pick up, especially if you're new, that the heartbeat of this church, um, helping people find their way back to God, the heartbeat of this church, uh, this passage in Luke 15, really inspires everything that we do, uh, even what you encounter and experience on a Sunday morning is inspired by this mission. It is the heartbeat of the individuals, the couples, the families, and even the pastors uh, here at Harbor Churches. And so I wanted to return to you this text um, because it's a really great mission. And then the question becomes, why would we rally behind a mission like helping people find their way back to God? And if you've been in churches before, you know sometimes the missions of churches can be like four paragraphs long. Like you probably can't remember the mission of most churches, but you can remember this one pretty easily. Uh, we even have a hashtag for it, which I'm, I'm sad I didn't put it on the slide, but uh, because it's long and it's hard to write out very often, so we hashtag it. <laughs> but, uh, but why this mission um, and why this particular passage? Um, I think Jesus actually does a really good job of explaining that. So I want to turn to you I want to turn to you one of the best stories, uh, one of the best parables written in the scriptures, uh, Luke 15, and picking up in verse one for a little bit of intro. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. Um, And uh, the first verse reads, and now the tax collectors and the sinners 
We're all drawing near to him, to Jesus, Jesus the Christ. Tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to him. So Luke is setting up a little bit of context for you, and he's actually, those words should be very, very jarring to you. Uh, They should be jarring to you because they don't actually make sense. Um, It's only if you know the story that they make sense, but if you didn't know the story, if you were reading the Gospel of Luke for the first time in the first century or in the second century, you would find these words odd. Because tax collectors and sinners were precisely the kinds of people who would run away from Jesus, not be drawn to Jesus. Um, Here's why. Tax collectors are a specific group of sinners. They're kind of a, if if they're a pie chart of sinners, tax collectors would be like a part of the pie chart. Uh, But tax collectors are sinners nonetheless. Now, we think of tax collectors, and we've explained this before, but we think of the tax collectors as these people who, they like work for the IRS, and and they, um, they have pocket protectors, and they process or don't process our forms when we mail them in. Um, have a little beef with the IRS right now. <laughs> yeah, we think of them as these like nerdy people who sit in an office and they've got their computers and their calculators. And it's not exactly how tax collecting worked in the first century, uh, primarily because there was no internet, there was no computer, there was no office building off to the side. Tax collectors were the people who came specifically to you, personally to you, to collect taxes. Um, on behalf of the Roman Empire, um, in your province or in your town, they collected taxes. Uh, and secondly, they were collecting taxes not just for themselves. They, people would love to pay the temple tax, um, which had to be collected as well, but they were collecting taxes specifically on behalf of Rome. Uh, the Roman Empire was an occupying force in Judea um, in, during this time in the land of God's people. Um, it would kind of be like, and this is an unfortunate example, but it's a, it's a pretty relevant one um, at this time, but it's kind of like if Russia invaded Ukraine and then your, um, some of your fellow countrymen and countrywomen decided to work with Ukraine to collect taxes on behalf, sorry, work with um, uh, Russia on behalf of Russia um, to collect taxes from their fellow countrymen and women to give back to Russia. And um, that's that feeling in the pit of your stomach right now. That's exactly that's exactly how people felt about tax collectors uh, in the first century. Uh, they were even allowed to torture you if you didn't pay up. Um, they were also allowed to take as much as they wanted, so long as they took enough to pay Rome. And so not a ton of oversight. I mean, in fact, we see glimpses of this in Luke's account. Um, earlier on in Luke, in Luke chapter three, uh, we find John the Baptist, he's at the Jordan and he's baptizing people and he's calling people to repentance. And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, and then the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And then he answered them, uh, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none um, and whoever has food, do likewise. Uh, but then the tax collectors also come to him to be baptized and they say to him, teacher, John the Baptist, teacher, what shall we do? And John the Baptist says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. But we also see this in the case of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is another well-known tax collector. We encounter him in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, we find Zacchaeus. He's a wee little guy, and he's too short to actually see Jesus through the crowds. Um, And so he climbs up into a sycamore tree to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus catches a glimpse of Zacchaeus. And he says to Zacchaeus on the spot, Zacchaeus, get down from there. I must go to your house to have a meal today. And so they go to his house and they have a meal. And during the middle of the meal, Zacchaeus stands up and he says to Jesus, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. This idea of restoring the things, restoring the wages that he, that he took from, that he defrauded his people of, he's gonna give those back. That's his way of expressing the truth and the genuineness of his repentance before God. 
And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, Zacchaeus and Matthew aside, tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst. They were robbers, they were liars, they were traitors, they were extortionists in the view of their fellow countrymen and women. Uh, And to be a tax collector was to be someone who essentially knowingly took advantage of other people for their own personal gain. Uh, These were the hedge fund managers of the ancient world. These are the people who were like at the top of the Ponzi scheme. These are the people who would like con your mom or your grandma out of her life savings, uh, who would bet your pension on a shaky deal and then act actually be able to sleep at night in another country without an extradition treaty with the U.S. Like, this was the moral caliber of tax collectors in the eyes of the people who interacted with them the most. So they were a special category of sinners, but they were sinners nonetheless, this broader category of sinners. Uh, Sinners are, now by the time we get to the first century, this idea that um, everyone is a sinner is pretty prominent. Um, Everyone is a sinner um, by the time we get to this point. But the difference, though, is that there are multiple ways, and if you read through the Old Testament, there's multiple ways of actually dealing with sin, uh, primarily through atoning sacrifices in the temple. And the whole day of atonement, we read about that in Leviticus, was designed as a way to deal with sin. Our own understanding of what Jesus does on the cross is based on this sacrificial system. Uh, not only that, but people would also um, give to the poor something they called almsgiving. I got it in. Uh, <laughs> so something that they called almsgiving. Uh, giving to the poor was a way to kind of, they thought about sin as like debt. And so maybe a way that you balance out your debt was to return, return um, wages, return um, return goods, return things that people needed to the poor, to the oppressed, to the widows, to the orphans. And so there are a number of ways of dealing with sin in the Old Testament. And so to be a sinner, to be categorized as a sinner meant that you essentially didn't want anything to do with any of those methods of dealing with sin. That despite your sin, you decided that you didn't want to offer sacrifices at the temple through the high priest, that to be a sinner, to be known as a sinner, was that you actually didn't want to offer um, extra goods or or, or services to the poor, specifically to balance out your sin. Um, To be known as a sinner was to be a bold, unrepentant sinner. In the first century, the people who couldn't bother with the religious rituals and traditions for atoning for sin. I mean, so as such, they were not just considered unrepentant, but they were considered wicked. And God's people were instructed not to associate with the wicked because they were people who were beyond the covenant between God and God's people. In fact, we read about this in rabbinic commentary from around this time, but a little bit later, but this, this, this idea still continues to permeate people's imaginations. Uh, we read um, in commentary on Exodus, uh, let not a man ever associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near to the Torah. In the Mishnah, we read, keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked and lose not belief in retribution, God's willingness to repay them for what they've done. Don't consort with them. Don't interact with them. If you and your neighbor are in the yard and you're both doing yard work on the same day, don't offer a cold beverage to them. Don't let your kids play with them. Don't let them on your team. Don't invite them into your group. Um, Don't ever associate with them, not even to bring them nearer to God through the study of the scriptures. The sinners and the tax collectors were essentially unfriendable unfriendable. Even if they wanted to be your friend, if they requested you on Facebook, you'd like just pretend they weren't there and you'd put them in like friend purgatory for like years. (laughs) So they were unfriendable people. And yet the greedy tax collectors and notorious sinners are doing something peculiar in this passage. The people everyone identifies as wicked and unrepentant are drawing near to Jesus. 
They're drawing near to Jesus. They're approaching him. They're coming near to him. They are moving toward Jesus. Um, I think we have a lot of ways of talking about the lost or talking about the sinners. Uh, there's this new, phrase, this new word that we use. We call them the nuns, not like sisters, like nuns in habits, but like the nuns as in not affiliated. Uh, sometimes we call them, um, we call them um, apathetic, like spiritually apathetic or spiritually indifferent, uh, non-practicing, irreligious, uh, the secular. And sometimes we even call them hostile. And yet, Luke, in his account of Jesus' life, calls them drawn. He calls them drawn to Christ. Luke tells us that these unrepentant sinners and tax collectors are drawing near to Jesus. And the question becomes, why? Why are they drawing near to him? Remember, these are people who lived incredibly sinful lives, who couldn't even be bothered with the religious and ritual and moral traditions of their own faith. Why are they drawing near to Jesus? And I would argue that it comes down to one word, One word, friendship. Jesus offers to be their friend. I'll say that a little bit more clearly in a bit. (laughs) Some of you know that I have actually, um, for the last couple of years, been working on a PhD in theology at Calvin. Um, And for the record, PhD at Calvin, I went to Western Theological, was attached to Hope for my MDiv. I love both Hope and Calvin equally the same, uh, <laughs> for the record. Uh, but I love theology, and I love debating theology, talking about it, reading it, studying it, um, writing it. And so I decided to, to do this. And Calvin actually has a program um, at their seminary. They've had it for a couple of decades now where they train pastors um, in really deep theology. Um, and so I can study part-time there and still serve a congregation full-time, which is really cool. But um, as you might suspect, I don't have a ton of time to like, I'm reading a lot. I don't have a ton of time to read for fun. Um, So I still occasionally slip in a couple of things, but for the most part, I don't read a ton of of, of extra things anymore, despite the fact that I keep buying books. And at this point, I have so many that I don't have room in my bookshelves. Um, Some women buy shoes, I buy books. Uh, uh, But I recently have been um, in all of the transitioning and, and kind of thinking about my time at South Harbor, and, and also just my investment in relationships just more broadly. Um, I'm an only child, and so when I was a kid, if I wanted to play with other kids, I had to just go make friends. Um, and so making friends and being a good friend has been a part of my, kind of the way that I've seen myself for the entirety of my life. And I, I'm sure some of you can relate to that, even as not being only children. Uh, but I came across this book on my bookshelf um, because bad habit. I have so many books that sometimes I forget I have them. Uh, so, so I came across this book on my bookshelf. Uh, it's called Christian Friendship, Engaging the Tradition and Transforming the Culture. And it, it sounds, it, it's, a, it's about exactly what it, what it says. Um, it's, it's a book written about this, um, about friendship and what friendship has meant within the Christian tradition, starting with the early church and kind of moving through. Um, ancient, uh, like early church times to medieval times to modern times and the way that friendship has been this vehicle for um, introducing people to Christ, this vehicle for transforming um, entire communities. And as I was thinking about what exactly is it that is so compelling that people are being drawn to Jesus? Um, What is this picture that Luke is trying to paint for us? Um, What is the nature of what Jesus is doing that is so rich and something that we ourselves can imitate in our own time? Um, I came across this quote um, from the author, and he's he's kind of um, reflecting on the words of John Paul II, but he says, I mean, he says something fascinating. He says that the, the heart of the gospel, like the heart of the gospel is not some moral improvement plan for your life. It's not moralism. The heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel is the offer of friendship. 
It's Jesus's offer of friendship into this offer of communion with God, um, communion with himself, and in, 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 in that, in relationship to our triune God. If there's something beautiful and compelling that is actually kind of beyond words, like we feel that on a gut level. Like we may not be able to describe in philosophical terms or theological terms what it means to be a good friend, but we know when someone likes us, right? Like you know when someone likes you and you know when you like someone else. Like you know when a person is like really your friend, like those people that you just love to be around, those people who love to be around you, you know what friendship feels like. I think what's so compelling about what Jesus is doing, what Luke is recording about what Jesus is doing, the thing that that is drawing people to Jesus is because Jesus is actually extending himself, that that the word made flesh, that the God of the cosmos in the flesh walking in their midst is extending himself to a group of sinners who have nothing to offer him but their sin, their despair, their brokenness, their frailty. He is extending himself to them in friendship. That somehow he's communicating love and, and welcome and hospitality to them. In fact, that is precisely what Luke says. As the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. They began to grumble and complain, saying, this man, Jesus, receives and, and eats with sinners. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. Um, he takes up with them. He welcomes them. He, he receives them in a friendly manner. Um, is another way of, of saying that word, prosdecati. I won't make you say it because it's a mouthful, <laughs> but uh, the simple act of hospitality, Jesus is actually making space for them over meals and around fire pits and at his desk and in the cafeteria and in his friend group and on his team. Jesus makes space for sinners and tax collectors, and when he does, transformation happens. Zacchaeus, who we just read about, repents and pays back all of the money that he swindled from people, literally because Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' life and home. And Matthew, Matthew, the least likely disciple, is in his tax booth, not even thinking about any of this. And Jesus comes up and offers him, literally invites him into his friend group, and it raises him from the dead. To a group of alienated sinners, Jesus extends the offer of deep and abiding friendship with God. But the tax collectors and sinners don't just draw near to Jesus. Uh, Luke says they actually listen to him. They actually listen to Jesus. Uh, They grant him a hearing. They inquire about Jesus and what he's teaching and what he's about. They listen to Jesus. Why do they listen? I would argue it's because Jesus offers them something that is actually life-giving. That Jesus' friendship, that his presence in their life is actually life-giving, Aquinas, he's a 13th century, don't quote me on the century, but 13th century uh, theologian, and he says uh, in his commentary actually on John chapter 15, verse 15, when Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends, uh, he comments on this and he kind of qualifies what kind of friend is Jesus? Um, And he says something to this, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, which is why there are no quotes there, but he says a friend is essentially someone who cares enough to guard or protect your soul, that Jesus is a guardian of our souls, that that's the way that he comes to us um, as the person who protects us and actually guides us back the right way to the Father. Jesus is, uh, my translation of that is, Jesus is the friend who is good news and brings good news. Jesus is the friend who is good news and brings good news because he is the perfect embodiment of those fruit of the spirit that we hear about in Galatians, that he's love, that he's joy, that he's peace, that he's patience, that he's goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control to the full, to the full. 
which basically means that people want to be around Jesus because he's fun. Remember, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's actually my favorite one. Uh, (laughs) People want to be around him because he's compelling, and he actually has something interesting and distinct to say. People want to imitate him because he knows the right way to live, and he lives it. People want to be honest with him about the things that they're facing because he serves them in really tangible, meaningful, beautiful ways. He not only preaches good news, but he is good news. I've discovered this in my own neighborhood, um, this way in which Jesus shows up and, and some of the defenses that people have up against religion or faith or Christianity or the church kind of start to melt away um, and not really through any provocation of my own, uh, which I'll, <laughs> I'll say a little bit more, more clearly. Um, I live in what I would argue is the most secular neighborhood like in the Grand Rapids area. Um, And I moved there because um, I do have some friends who live in that neighborhood, but also because I'm a pastor in a church and I'm now studying at a seminary, I'm rarely gonna come in contact with non-Christians so I had to find a way to be more intentional about that. And um, so I moved to this neighborhood, plus there's just really great coffee, but uh, (laughs) lattes in Hipsterville are great. (laughs) So so you you might think that in a neighborhood like that, it's really hard to have conversations about faith. Like nobody wants to talk about faith. People have their yard signs and their flags and like everything's up, like nobody wants to talk about faith. And yet I've discovered it is actually the opposite. In fact, sometimes I'm going out of my way to not talk about something and other people bringing conversations and questions to me. Um, Sometimes I'm sitting on my porch, and sometimes it's a Sunday afternoon, I'm sitting on the porch, and I'm reading the paper, usually through my iPad. Um, I'm not cool enough to have like an actual newspaper in hand, so I read it on my iPad like a millennial, but, um, or a a textbook or or some theology book, and a neighbor will come over, um, and they'll either learn that I'm a pastor, or they already know that I'm a pastor, and they'll say things like, you know, well, what did you do today? Well, I went to church today. It was a fun day at church. I had lots of coffee in the lobby with a lot of fun people. Oh, I'm never going to church again. And I'm like, what did I ask? I don't understand how that came out. <laughs> Apparently, you want to talk about it. Or, you know, a friend introduces me to one of their friends, and they say, like, gosh, like, I've been waiting to interact with someone like you who, who like, like, actually follows this Jesus guy, and you're a part of a church. Like, I have so many questions for you. Um, and usually, it's like, it's an intense conversation, admittedly. But um, what I've discovered is that people want to talk. They want to talk about faith. Um, and usually when they bring the conversation to me, I realize that like it's time to put down the iPad and put down the warm milk if that's what I'm having and start to listen more intentionally and start to ask more questions and also let them ask me questions because in those conversations, what I discover is that people want to share why they've left the church. They want to share the questions they have. Like they want to share um, where they've landed or how they're thinking about things or how they're thinking about faith and spirituality and morality um, these days. They want to share those things. And when they trust you, when they know that you genuinely care about them, they actually want to hear your experience of Christ and the church too. They want to hear that. And even if, even if it just literally just sits alongside maybe their poor experience of the church, it's an experience that sits alongside it that actually refutes it and says, I know that you're, this was your experience of the church, but let me tell you what Christ has done in my life. I know that this is your experience of, of the church where maybe you saw this thing on the news, but let me tell you about this church in Byron Center. They're amazing people, right? It just sits alongside and it, it's enough to just make them hold both of those things in tension for a bit. I think the heart of the gospel is that God looks upon broken, sinful humanity, and instead of calling us enemies, instead of judging us by the yard signs and the flags, instead of looking at the things that we've done and the worst things that we've ever done, he looks at us and he calls us friends. 
and he takes on flesh and he dwells among us to show us just how genuine this offer of friendship is. And that fact, that fact changes people. It softens hearts, it melts away shame, it literally raises the dead to life. But despite all the transformation that is being detailed throughout Luke's account of the gospel, despite all these stories of sinners literally being raised to new life in Christ, all these stories of transformation, the Pharisees and the scribes, we find, are grumbling. They're grumbling. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumble and complain that Jesus is having meals with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus notices that they are completely scandalized by his actions. And so he tells them three parables back to back. Now, we're not going to cover all three today, but we're going to cover the last one. It's a familiar parable. Uh, I forgot to put the painting of this parable in the sermon um, slides, but it's the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. Maybe sometimes you've heard it as the parable of the youngest son, Uh, but it's a beautiful parable, and it begins this way down in verse 11. Uh, There is a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them, and not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, where and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. So Jesus begins the story, I'll pause here for a sec, that Jesus begins the story with um, kind of a supervillain. Um, you know, sometimes like you watch a Disney movie and you're like, no one can be this terrible. Like that's, that's the picture that Luke is painting, uh, that Jesus is painting, that Luke is recording of the younger son. Like he's the younger son who actually goes to his father while his father is still alive and says, I want you to give me my half of the inheritance. Now, according to Kenneth Bailey, he's a, a cultural scholar. He says uh, that it is entirely possible that in some instances, a father would divide his estate um, amongst his children while he was still alive. Um, But it is virtually unheard of for a son to go to his father and ask that he do so. It was usually the father deciding that he would do something, not being asked or demanded, and it being asked or demanded by the son. Um, Not only that, but context clue in the text, the son squanders his wealth which means that he had to liquefy his portion of his father's estate, which is essentially like you dividing your possessions, your house included amongst your children, and then your child, one of your children, selling off their part or their portion to a stranger. Now you've got a permanent Airbnb guest in your house. It's a little, it's not this private affair. It's like this very, very public, very shameful thing that has just taken place here. Um, So the younger son squanders his wealth, and this would be the request the, the liquefying of the assets, the going off and shaming the father, uh, in a father in a faraway country, all of that would be, um, all of that would be unbelievably um, gut-wrenching to witness, which is why, I mean, it's entirely possible that he would have been considered a rebellious son. Uh, this might have been punishable by death. Um, according to um, the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 21, we read that a rebellious son, someone who actively um, embarrassed, shamed, and defied their parents um, in, in Deuteronomy, they were punishable by potentially stoning to death um, as a signal to the rest of the townspeople, um, and particularly the youths, uh, to not behave in this way. Um, What a father would not do, what a father would not do is actually oblige such a request. But this father does, and his son essentially squanders it all. Then after he has spent everything in verse 14, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 
And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. Uh, this is a clue to just the level of desperation that he is in at this point. This is, this is the text indication that he has hit rock bottom because he's a, good, um, he's a good Jewish boy. He would have been raised in a culture and within a faith that taught him that he was not supposed to not only touch pigs because pigs were unclean, definitely wasn't supposed to eat pigs because even the bacon, it, I know it smells good, but you're not supposed to eat it. Um, he would know that he was not supposed to be anywhere near pigs because they were unclean. And by being around the pigs, he became unclean. And yet, and yet, in order to make money to be able to feed himself, he is now feeding the pigs. And he longed, he longed to even be able to eat the pots that he was feeding to the pigs, but no one gave him anything. So this is the point where if this were a movie, you would find him in the fields one day, kind of thinking back on his life back with his family and how good it was, how good he had, and even how good the servants of his father had it. Um, He would be thinking back, and you'd almost see something like regret on his face. If it were a cartoon, you'd see like tears in his eyes, like really dramatic, like tears, his upper upper lip would be shaking a bit. Um, And so he comes to himself in verse 17, and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me then as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But before he can offer his speech to his father, uh, mind you, he is expecting the wrath of his dad. Like he, is, he knows that he has not do anything from his dad. He knows that he has shamed his dad before all of the people. And he's not expecting much. He's actually planning to plead for mercy. Please let me just simply be like one of the servants. Like that'll be both punishment and also I won't starve to death. Right? So he's coming back to the father. He's, he's coming back and he's um, planning to offer this speech. But before he can, his father is filled with compassion for him. Uh, this word uh, in the Hebrew, sorry, in the Greek is splank nitsomai. Let me hear you say splank nitsomai. Splank nitsomai. <laughs> You're less confident on the second one. <laughs> uh, this is actually Chelsea's favorite Greek word. I think it's one of, one of Tim's favorite Greek words, Reverend Tedeb's uh, favorite Greek words too. It's this word that is often translated in the scriptures as pity or compassion. I added the word deep there because in some lexicons, the word deep compassion or deep pity is listed. Um, and and it's, it's hard to almost articulate what it means because it's, it's not just like you see a puppy on TV, like the ASPCA commercials with like, I think it's Celine Dion like singing in the background. You're like, oh, puppy, sad. It's not like that. Like it's, it's actually a little bit deeper than that. Like it's like a, it's not even a heart level compassion or pity. It's like gut level. Like there's something visceral um, gut level, like, like it's, it's, it, it, it's something deeper than an emotion or a feeling. It's an intuition. It's an instinct. It's something that comes from deep within your gut. And the text says that this is, this is, this is what fills, the, like the father is filled with compassion, uh, filled with this deep gut level compassion and pity for his son. And he goes to him and he throws his arms around him. Um, and before he can get his speech out, before he can even finish his speech, he, you know, he does the thing, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father restores him, puts his ring on him, welcomes him back to the family, and then tells his servants to go and, and, and throw a party. Like the fattened calf that we've been saving for a really, really amazing moment, the moment has arrived. Go kill it, bring it back, we'll grill it, and we will throw a party because this son of ours Barbecue is always a great way to celebrate uh, because the son of ours 
has come home. The son of mine, um, specifically, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Hear what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, The dead are raised to life, Jesus says. The lost are being found, Jesus says. Um, This is cause for celebration. Those people that you think of as wicked, unrepentant sinners who want nothing to do, nothing to do with the Torah, nothing to do with God, those people are being transformed right in front of me. This is cause for celebration. This is a good reason to throw a party, Jesus says. But not everyone is excited. Picking up in verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. But the father comes out to him and pleads with him. The father comes out and, and, and pleads for him. As the older brother is miffed, he won't go into the party. And the father isn't able to enjoy the party. I missed this the kind of the first time I moved through this passage. The father isn't actually pleased to have a party just with the younger son. He wants the older brother there too. And so he leaves the party, goes out to the older brother, and actually begs him, pleads with him, begs him to come back to the party. Um, and the older brother goes on this rant. Um, he, I followed all the rules, the older brother said. I did everything right, the older brother says. I never broke any of your commandments, um, the older brother says. He's the one who broke the rules. He's the one who marred our reputation before the people. He squandered all of our wealth. We've got this terrible Airbnb in our house, and his theology is jacked. Why would you accept him back here? Why would you let him come? And then the father says to him, my son, my son, feel the compassion in his voice for the older son too. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. We were compelled to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost, and now he was found. In this parable that Jesus tells, a father mercifully and compassionately embraces his son, while the older, self-righteous brother looks on in disapproving horror. And the Pharisees and the scribes who had memorized large chunks of scripture uh, would almost certainly have heard something familiar as Jesus was telling this parable. In fact, I'm willing to argue that they would have heard this parable as an indictment on them. Because Jesus is diagnosing a problem. In fact, a problem that was diagnosed hundreds of years before this through a prophet named Ezekiel. Uh, Through Ezekiel, in uh, chapter 34 of Ezekiel, God admonishes the shepherds who were essentially like the older brothers, the older siblings of Israel. Uh, They were the people who were supposed to rule. They were the people who were supposed to guide the people back to God. Um, They were the people who were supposed to go after the people who had strayed from God. Um, And they're not doing that. And so God says through Ezekiel, the weak you have not strengthened, and the sick you have not healed, and the injured you have not bound up, and the strayed you have not brought back, and the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. And so they were scattered uh, because there was no shepherd and they became food for all of the wild beasts um, in the field. My sheep were scattered, God says. They wandered over all of the mountains and on every high hill, um, high hills and high places where people worshiped idols. Uh, the people wandered, they were scattered on every high hill. Uh, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one, no one to search or seek for them. Jesus says to the grumbling Pharisees and scribes, where 
are the shepherds? Where are the people who are filled with deep, visceral, gut-level compassion for the lost and the scattered? Where are the older siblings, the older brothers and the older sisters who will go and search diligently for their siblings? But through Ezekiel, God also makes a promise. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus says, especially like right after he, um, the transformation of Zacchaeus, he says, I have come to seek and save the lost. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy in Ezekiel. Um, Jesus is the one who comes to gather the lost sons and daughters. And when they return, when one of the lost is transformed before our eyes um, in Christ, and there's only one thing to do. It is to join our voices with the angels and celebrate. Uh, to join our voices with the angels and celebrate. Um, and not just that, not just that. We don't just kind of passively wait for them to, um, to, to, to return or to repent. Um, don't miss the lament in Ezekiel. Uh, we're not just supposed to passively wait. We're actually supposed to go after them ourselves. Um, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them, God says. Hear the lament. Um, hear the compassion in God's voice for the lost. We are being sent to search for the lost, to seek the scattered, to, to help people find their way back to God. And this is as compelling of a mission today um, as it was when Jesus told this parable and as it was when God spoke through Ezekiel hundreds of years before that. According to data from Gallup, um, I think this is a couple of years ago at this point, American membership in houses of worship uh, continued to decline, dropping to 47%. I know this is all, like church, synagogue, mosque, um, all put together, 47%, which is down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. Uh, this is below 50% for the first time in eight decades. It's 80 years. Um, Pew Research reports similar findings that um, Americans who identify as Christian fell from 77% in 2009 to just 65% um, in 2019. Um, Americans who identify as nothing in particular rose from 17%, that's the nuns, uh, rose from 17% in 2009 to 26% in 2019. Um, and you might think, well, you know, maybe, um, maybe that's kind of the larger picture of like faith and spirituality in America, but what does that have to do with us here in West Michigan or Kent County, um, or as what my friends refer to um, lovingly as the Bible Belt of the North? Uh, <laughs> true story. Um, and it's actually kind of on par. Um, according to um, MLive, which is using the data from Key Research, Kent County, which is our county, uh, something like 50% of our county is a member of a Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant church. Um, that's all of them lumped together. 4% belong to other religions entirely. And this was astounding to me when I read that figure for the first time. 45% of people in Kent County belong to no congregation at all. That's almost half. Almost half. That's one in two. One in two people in Kent County belong to no congregation at all. That's astoundingly high for a region known for its faith. Astounding, astoundingly high, but yet not impossible. Um, not impossible, and, and you yourselves are proof of that. Um, you are, a number of you are the kinds of people who help people find their way back to God. Um, and I know that because I run into people who know you. Um, in fact, I was on a plane last weekend. I, I flew out to, to New England for a couple of days. 
um, to hang out with friends and to go to a conference. Didn't have time to do that, but they're my friends, so I went. Uh, but, um, but on the way back, I was reading a book on the plane. Uh, it's, it was uh, called um, Overcoming Sin and Temptation. It's written by John Owen, this like 17th century Puritan. Uh, but the foreword was from John Piper. Now, I was trying to hide the book, because you know, you don't want to talk about that. <laughs> so I was kind of trying to hide it. But the person next to me recognized the name of John Piper. Um, and so she was like, oh yeah, what's the, what's the book? And I'm like, let's talk about your book. Like, what's your book about? <laughs> Tell me what you're reading. Uh, and so we get to talking and we kind of chat a little bit more. And we start comparing like where we live and like where we go to church and all the things. And I tell her that I'm at South Harbor Church and she's like, oh my gosh, I know your church. And I'm like, How, do, do, do you go to South Harbor? And she's like, no, no, like I know someone from your church. Like I work out with Chris Prime, uh, Mark and Chris Prime who have been here for years. They've raised their family right here in Byron Center. Um, they serve coffee on a regular basis. Chris has led... Um, uh, like, like <laughs> I would call it like high intensity workout classes here at South Harbor. Uh, but she also does it in her neighborhood and she also trains people and personally like coaches people as well. And this was one of the people that she's been working with. Uh, and this where she was kind of sheepish because she's like, I've been on vacation for like a week and a half and I'm, I'm not sure I'm gonna be up for the workout when I get back. But she was excited to go push herself because she was excited to hang out with Chris. Um, this congregation is full of stories like that of people who... People who have been extended the gift of friendship through you and your kindness and your hospitality and your grace and your welcoming of them. Um, I am thinking of the Steeles. Um, Jenny Steele, Derek Steele, who led a missional movement up in Rockford. Um, dozens of people who, um, they helped find their way back to God, um, all on the basis of friendship with God and friendship with one another um, and friendship with even people who are not even from our country, refugees, as they serve them together. Um, I can think of tons of people, Dave and Jill Vaneman, who opened up their backyard and their, and their home to their neighbors right here in Byron Center, the Vanderroers, who are friends not only to people within our congregation, but people who are around them here in Byron Center. So many people in our congregation um, so many people, Scott and Jody Joseph, just tons of people, dozens of people, missional community leaders who just have the, not, I don't even want to call it a gift, like they just, they, they know the gift of friendship that was offered to them in Christ, and they can't keep it to themselves, and so they're kind to other people, they welcome other people, they extend the hospitality of Jesus Christ to other people, and the transformation is evident because some of the people in this room are here because they said hi to them. Um, sometimes I think that we think that the bold proclamation of the gospel is about having the right words to say at the right moment. Um, but what I see in the scriptures and what I see in the early church's example are a group of people who just felt, more than they could say, felt on a visceral level the just deep love and compassion that God had for them. And that love transformed them. That love, Paul says, was poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then they didn't keep it to themselves. They extended it to other people. They extended it to neighbors and friends and to people that they worked with. And something happened. The church happened. Like the faith happened. It moved. The church was built. The kingdom was advanced through this tiny little, almost seemingly insignificant vehicle of friendship. What I discovered um, about Harbor Churches and what I discovered about South Harbor um, is that this is a community of people who extend themselves for other people to help people find their way back to God. Um, and this is the church that I found um, years ago when I was interviewing here. I think I spent something like seven or eight months talking to people like Tom Ellenboss, the senior pastor, and um, Tim Wilson, the lead pastor here, and Reverend Timothy, um, and um, Greg Vandermeer over at Fairhaven and Tanner Smith, who at the time was over at Harbor Life. And I remember thinking, like, these would be really fun people to work with. Um, and I also remember thinking, 
but I have currently really fun people to work with. Like, so what are the actual people of South Harbor like? And then I sat down in living rooms, uh, Dave and Jill Vaneman, um, Bill and Amy, Gaddison Herring, um, and a couple other folks opened up their living rooms and dozens of you like piled into those living rooms and um, began to ask me questions about me, but also let me ask questions about you. Like, why do you love South Harbor? Like, what is this community to you? I mean, that is when I heard stories of how you had experienced Christ in new ways within this congregation and how you were sharing Christ. I mean, not just you as adults, but like your teens were sharing Christ with people. I mean, these really, really tangible ways, inviting people in, befriending people, um, helping people find their way back to God. And that was the moment that I knew that this was a community that I wanted to be a part of because that mission of helping people find their way back to God is not just something that we write on documents. It's not just something on a sound booth, but it's literally lived, it's lived and breathed by the people in this church. It has been an absolute joy and a gift to be one of your pastors, um, to serve alongside you, to pray with you, to open the scriptures with you, um, to cheer you on as you do incredible things that I randomly get to hear about in our community and on planes, apparently. Um, I will miss gathering regularly with you. Um, I will miss all the laughs in coffee shops and restaurants and living rooms and porches and in the lobby. Um, but despite not gathering regularly with you uh, within these four walls, um, I hope you know, and this is genuine for me, I will always, always be your friend. Because thankfully, the gift of friendship is not a temporary thing and it's not even confined to distance and space. It's eternal. In Christ, it's eternal. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that as Paul says, when we were far off, when we were distant, we were still hostile to you and locked in our sin that you looked at us and you didn't see us as enemies, but you saw us as friends. You saw us as yours, as people that you wanted back because we belong to you. We are thankful that you um, showed us that in Christ who comes to us as our savior, who comes to us to um, not just live among us, but who died for us. And in raising him from the dead and him ascending to sit at your right hand, demonstrates your love and your compassion for us in ways that we can hardly articulate sometimes but that we just know deep in our souls. And Lord, we thank you that you have transformed us by this gift of charity in our hearts and that you send us to um, proclaim your love, your love and your grace and your truth to others, not only with our words, um, but Lord, also with our deeds and not just with our deeds, but with our invitations into life and friendship with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray, amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.